I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, and that's it, just the book of Hebrews. We're going to do a review this morning of the book of Hebrews. I'd like to read this morning Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which I will go back to later, but Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as it preached this morning, that it would penetrate our hearts and lives. And Lord, we would indeed proclaim all glory be to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. As I stated last week, we could have ended with that message, and it would have been fine. But as I thought it over, and, and I was mulling things over in my head, I felt that it would be a good idea to wrap up our study by focusing in on the overall theme of Hebrews, which is the glory of Christ. Now you know what the problem with that is, don't you? It's, it's this, how am I going to focus in on this theme of the glory of Christ and cram it all into one message? Furthermore, preaching on the glory of Christ is far beyond my ability. I mean, if I were Charles Spurgeon, I'm certain I could stand up here and proclaim the glory of Christ without issue, but I'm not Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure you've noticed. Let me be honest with you. I know a lot of folks after the sermon on Sunday, they go out and they say, great sermon pastor or boy pastor, that was deep or whatever it might be. And I spend a lot of time studying, preparing the sermons. But to be honest, I never feel adequate. And today, I surely don't feel adequate. So I ask God to glorify Himself in spite of me. We're going to review the entire book of Hebrews, and we are going to focus in on what it teaches concerning the glory of Christ. There's nothing more important in this life than to gain a biblical and personal knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what the world values. The world values money and clothing and reputation and status and comfort and everything that you can think of. And I want you to realize that we are to let go of all those things to know Christ. In other words, Jesus is supposed to be everything. If you have Jesus Christ and you lose everything, you have everything you need. Because you have Jesus. But if you gain the whole world, the Bible says, without Jesus Christ, then you have absolutely nothing. And so the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to a group of Jewish believers in Christ. And if you remember, we said right from the outset that they were facing the threat of persecution and some were turning away from Christ and they were returning to Judaism. And now the author knew that the only way these people would stand firm in their faith, even to the point of death, was if they had a proper view of Jesus in his glory. This is why there was a focus on Christ and, and how he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament that the Old Testament pointed towards. If they would remain focused on the person and work of Christ, if they would remain focused on his glory, they would be able to endure any persecution that came their way. And so, the, so to sum up the entire book of Hebrews in a sentence, I would say this. Seeing the glory of Christ in his person and work will enable us to endure trials by faith. Seeing the glory of Christ in his person and work will enable us to endure trials by faith. John Owen said this, The glory of God comprehends both the holy properties of his nature and the counsel of his will. In the light of the knowledge of these things, we have only in the face of of the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God comprehends both the holy properties of his nature and the counsels of his will and the light of the knowledge of these things we have only in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to reveal to us the holy nature of God and the counsel of his will. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7, the author speaks of Jesus. And he cites from Psalm chapter 40. And writes, uh, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came to do the will of God. Yes, to display God's holiness. Yes, to display his justice yes to display his wrath and punishing all sin but also his infinite mercy and his love in providing the sacrifice that his justice demands jesus came to offer himself in our place on the cross of calvary for his sacrifice jesus' sacrifice to be applied to us he had to be a man this is what the author of hebrews begins with by revealing to us the person of Jesus Christ as both God and man. So let's break this whole thing down this morning. First, let's see the glory, seeing the glory of Christ in his person. 
This is Hebrews chapter 1 through chapter 4, seeing the glory of Christ in his person. The author of Hebrews didn't mess around. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, I wonder how I'm going to start this or anything like that. He didn't have writer's block. He let us know who Jesus Christ was right from the beginning. First, he declared that Jesus Christ is God's final revelation. He does this in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, which I just read to you, but let me read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So this is how God used to speak by, by the prophets. But in these last days, which is when he's writing, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is God's final revelation. I preached two sermons over these verses. Probably could have preached more. I gave a quote from John Calvin over these verses which Calvin was making an emphasis that the author was making the point that this was not theological but practical John Calvin said his purpose was really to build up our faith so that we may learn that God is made known to us in no other way than in Christ for as to the essence of God so immense is the brightness that it dazzles our eyes except it shines on us in Christ If we look at these verses, there's seven statements on who Jesus is. Just in those verses, seven statements. I could have preached seven sermons over this. Some of you guys are saying, thank you, you didn't. Right? It says, first, that he is heir of all things. Then it says, through him, God made the world. Then it says, he's the radiance of God's glory He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Fifthly, he upholds everything by the word of his power. Sixthly, he made purification for us in seven. He now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. I can't go back over these seven things here. If you want to know more, I would refer you to the sermon, The Supremacy of Christ, which was preached on September 24th, 2017. That's when I preached that sermon. You can go on our website. You can listen to it if you want to know more about this. Here is what is evident in these verses and those that follow. Jesus Christ is God. He's not a God. He is not one of many gods. He is not one of several gods or anything like that. Jesus Christ is the God. He is God's final revelation. And then the author continues on to show us that Jesus has greater glory than the angels. He reveals this to us in verses 4 through 14. Regardless of of shows that we see on TV or used to see on TV, like touched by an angel and and others, the Bible makes it clear that angels, they're always depicted wrongly for some reason. Angels are marvelous, glorious creatures. I don't think the TV can really capture what an angel is. 
Daniel, when describing his vision of an angel, said, The body was like barrel, the face like lightning, eyes that were like flaming torches, arms and feet like polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. How did Daniel respond to this angel? He said that no strength was left in him. His natural color had turned to an unnatural color, and he had no strength left. Daniel was left so wiped out that he fell into a deep sleep, and when the angel woke him, he trembled on his hands and knees. Why do I share this? Because that was an angel that Daniel had an encounter with, And Hebrews says that the Son of God is greater than the angels. In glory, so much so that he writes this. And again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, in case... We miss it. The author gives a contrast between the angels who served God's uh, who served God as flames of fire with the sun, and this is what he says of the sun in verse eight. But of the sun, he says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom." You see, the author is building this case that Jesus is greater than all of the angels in His glory. He goes on to cite from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, and he applies it to Jesus, and this is what the Old Testament ascribed to God. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Then he wraps this all up. He puts, it, uh, uh, puts a bow on it by asking this question in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? I love it. So he, he dresses, this is, this is, Who Jesus is. And then he says. To which of the angels has he ever said. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies. A footstool for your feet. No created being can sit at the right hand of God. That honor belongs to only one. And that's the eternal son of God. Jesus is greater than the angels. And we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, that makes sense since he is he is God. But the author of Hebrews does not just set out to prove the deity of Jesus. He also reveals that Jesus is perfect in his humanity. So in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 he gives this practical exhortation and then he continues on and he says he reveals to us that Jesus is truly God and truly man this is in verses 5 through 18 of chapter 2 the author introduces these verses something that he will come back to throughout the book and that is that Jesus came into the world to suffer and die for our sins now when it comes to tragedy 
often people will say, what a terrible accident. You ever hear someone say that? What a terrible accident when it comes to tragedy. Let me be clear. The death of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It was not a wrench thrown into the plan of God. It was not a plot twist. The death of Jesus Christ was not plan B. It, it, it did not thwart the plan of God. God was not up in heaven going, Oh, I did not see that coming. We must understand that the death of Jesus fulfilled God's plan to rescue you and I from the ravages of sin. In fact, the author of Hebrews makes this shocking statement in chapter 2, verse 10, when he writes this, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author says, For whom and by whom all things. So what's he saying? He's making it clear that God is the first and final cause of all things. He's the first and final cause of everything that is, which includes the plan of salvation through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is also revealing that God is active in His creation, governing His creation at all times, and working everything within the creation of this world after the counsel of His will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 makes it clear. So the death of Jesus on our behalf, according to this verse, was fitting. Do we understand that? The death of Jesus for you, God said, was fitting. Why? Why was the death of His Son for my sin fitting? Because it was working for God's glory in accordance with His eternal purpose. It it displayed God's perfect attributes of righteousness and justice and power and wisdom and love and grace. Jesus' death was fitting because it confirmed Him, according to chapter 2, verse 14, as the captain of our salvation. The death of Jesus Christ was triumphant over Satan and the power of death. Jesus is now our faithful high priest, according to chapter 2, verse 17, who can come to the aid of those who are tempted, according to verse 18. Now, you would think that to portray Jesus as truly God, who is superior to the angels, and as truly man, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, would be enough. You would think, well, that's got to be enough. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's greater than the angels, and he lived a life, and he was sacrificed for our sin. However, we must remember that the author is writing to the Jews who regarded Moses as the greatest man who had ever lived on the face of the earth. So now he has to show that Jesus has greater glory than Moses. 
So chapter 3 is focusing on Jesus being greater than Moses. The theme of the book is summed up in two words from chapter 3, verse 1. It says these two words, consider Jesus. Consider means that you think about something by taking the time to carefully observe it. Often our problem is that we do not take the time to consider Jesus as he is revealed in God's written word. We just kind of had this conversation in Sunday school. How we, we say things that are not biblically true or biblically accurate. and We think it sounds good or whatever. It's because we don't consider Jesus as he's revealed in his word. Moses went up into the mountain and he spent 40 days alone with God. That was pretty awesome, I bet. When he came down from the mountain, his face was radiant with the glory of God. That's what the scripture tells us. Jesus didn't go up on some mountain. Jesus came from heaven itself. He came from the very presence of God to reveal God to us. In Luke 10.22, Jesus makes this astonishing claim. He says that all things have been handed over to him by his Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal himself. What a powerful statement. If you want to know the living God, then you must ask the Son to reveal Him to you. Because you can't know either the Father or the Son apart from divine revelation. That's what Jesus says. You can't, know, you can't even know the Father nor the Son unless it gets revealed to you. So, in other words, you are blind to spiritual things. You are blind to who the Father is and who the Son is unless it gets revealed to you. Now, if you remember Matthew 16, Peter makes a confession about Jesus, right? You, you may remember this. Maybe you've read it. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How did Jesus respond? He didn't say, well... That's great, Peter. You're a pretty smart dude. No. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then he follows it up with what we just read. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Don't you love how Scripture always confirms Scripture? Jesus says, You... you you can't know unless it's revealed to you, unless it's divine revelation. Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, yeah, that wasn't flesh and blood. My father showed you that. Jesus is saying that no mere man could make such claims. After he is resurrected, Jesus then tells his disciples, all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. So it is clear that all Scripture points to Jesus. 
who was sent by God's sovereign plan to reveal him and accomplish his will. This makes Jesus greater than Moses and all of, all of the prophets who had ever lived combined. But what about all of that which was written in the Old Testament about the promised land and the Sabbath? And, and so the, the author answers all that as well. He says this, Jesus provides rest for eternity that Joshua could not in Hebrews chapter 4. Just so we're clear, Hebrews chapter 4 is not talking about some sort of like inner peace that you experience. It's talking about the author's concern for his readers. He was concerned that like many who were united with Israel in the wilderness, they had an association with God's people. Remember we talked about this. They're out in the wilderness. They have an association with God's people, but they will miss God's salvation because of their unbelief. They're associated with God's people, but they don't believe, and so they'll miss salvation. There are all kinds of people that are gathered in church probably this Sunday morning, associated with God's people, but they do not believe, and they will miss salvation. The author shows that salvation has always been offered to the people of God using the imagery of rest. He reveals that true rest can only come from Christ when we rest from our works and trust in his completed work on the cross. This is why Jesus made the promise. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew eleven twenty eight. The author concludes chapter 4 by letting us know that Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and we are invited to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in the first four chapters of Hebrews, the author focuses in on seeing the glory of Christ in his person. This is who the person of Jesus is. This is the glory of Christ in his person. Let me just give you a challenge here this morning. I don't know how much or if you spend any time reading God's word. If you don't, first let me challenge you to start. And when you do, let me challenge you to ask God to reveal more and more about Christ to you as you read his word. Just say, God, reveal more and more to me about Jesus as I'm reading your word. And he'll do it. Point number two. Seeing the glory of Christ in the work of his priesthood. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. I know I said this before, but it bears repeating. Hebrews is the only book that presents to us Jesus Christ as our high priest. Some people may find that boring or irrelevant because we have difficulty understanding the idea of Jesus being our high priest. However, if you really want to understand the priesthood of Christ, then you must have a clear understanding of the absolute holiness and majesty of God. No Hebrew would ever dare 
to go in the Holy of Holies and approach the altar where God's glory was manifested. They wouldn't do it. We also need to understand our sinfulness apart from Christ. And that will cause you to have a deeper appreciation of what Jesus did for you on the cross as a high priest who entered into the holy place, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, as Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. In the church, we need to recapture a deep appreciation of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It is one of the most practical doctrines in all of the Bible. Because it humbles our pride. I'm sure none of us ever struggle with pride. But let me tell you that pride is the root of every single relational conflict. And just about every sin that you can think of. Pride's the root of it. We're too proud to say we're sorry. So we don't. We're too proud to admit we're wrong. So we don't. We're too proud to take the high road. So we don't. You can think of all kinds of relational conflict. And if we would just humble ourselves, oftentimes those conflicts would be solved. Just by humility. Just by simple humility, those conflicts would be solved. But we don't. Because we don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to swallow our pride. So take some time and ask God to reveal to your heart the glory of Jesus. In the work of His priesthood. Two things relating to this. First, as our high priest, Jesus is superior to Aaron and his priesthood. As our high priest, Jesus is superior to Aaron and his priesthood. This is seen in chapters 5 through 7. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, the author shows us that Jesus is the kind of high priest that every single sinner needs. And then from chapter 5, verses 11 through 6, the author encourages his readers to press on towards maturity. He gave a severe warning in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. He confronts them with the assurance that he is convinced of better things concerning them, namely things that accompany salvation. He then points to Jesus, who is the anchor for our souls, the forerunner who has entered beyond the veil as our high priest forever and ever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 then goes into an explanation of why Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And it's through Jesus that we can draw near to God and be assured of our salvation. Not only is Jesus superior to Aaron and his priesthood, but Jesus, our high priest, is superior to the old covenant. We find this in chapters 8, 1 through ten eighteen. And as much as I'd like to go into all the detail, I can't. Otherwise, we would be here for hours and that snowstorm would hit while I'm still preaching. So let me quickly give you a summary of the critical details. Jesus offers better promises than the Old Covenant offered. This is chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. In every way, Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant. 
And it says that he makes the first one obsolete. Number two, Jesus offers a better tabernacle than the old covenant offered. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. The old tabernacle was this kind of portable tent shrine that was always moving, but it was inadequate. It offered limited access to God, limited efficacy, whereas Jesus offers unlimited access to God and unlimited efficacy. Thirdly, Jesus offers a better sacrifice than than the old covenant did. Chapter 9, verse 15 through chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus' blood offered a better purity. It was a better representation. It was a better sacrifice. It offered a better hope than the Old Covenant offered. The Old Covenant was imperfect. It offered an imperfect cleansing. Whereas Jesus was perfect. And He offers perfect forgiveness. The whole point is that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant in every single way imaginable. That if we want access to the Father, if you want to gain access to the Father, then you can only gain access to the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, therefore, if you want access to the Father, you must place your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus to gain access to the Father. And the final section of Hebrews reveals to us how it is that we should apply these great truths about the glory of Christ and His person and His work. And so lastly, seeing the glory of Christ and His person and work will enable us to endure trials by faith. Hebrews 10, 19 through chapter 13, verse 25. The author ends chapter 10 by issuing a severe warning. And then chapter 11, he points us to those who endured by faith. By looking ahead to God's promises that are found in Jesus Christ, which we received. We are then encouraged to submit to the discipline of God, which he brings to us so that we will share his holiness. He then concludes chapter 12 by giving a contrast of God's revelation at Mount Sinai with the glorious kingdom at Mount Zion, which we receive by coming to Jesus and the new covenant in his blood. It's for this reason we have cause to endure by faith. Even if it means we suffer reproach. Because we're seeking a heavenly city which is yet to come. That's what we should be looking at. That's where our focus is supposed to be. Our focus is not supposed to be on this world. The problems of this world. The cares of this world. The trials of this world. The pain of this world. The suffering of this world. Our focus is not to be on this world. But our focus is to be towards heaven. And Jesus Christ. Who suffered in our place on Calvary's cross. That's got to be our focus. 
Because when we focus on this, it's depressing. It's depressing. You start to focus on on all the problems, all the issues, all the struggles, and it is depressing. But when we focus on what Christ has done for us and we focus on eternity, it causes us to shift our mindset. I titled this message, Our Glory Be to Christ, for a reason. That should be our life. Our lives, as we live out this Christian life, should reveal the glory of Christ. The things you say, the things you do, your attitudes, all should reveal the glory of Christ. How we live should reveal the glory of Christ. It should reflect the glory of Christ. Not only that, but our focus has to be on His glory. And when our focus is on His glory, it changes how we handle our trials. It changes how we see things. It changes what others see in us. When our focus is on His glory, others that are peering in see that there's a difference. A few years ago, while at a conference, we sang this song titled, All Glory Be to Christ. And I'm not going to sing that for you this morning because I don't want to clear the church out, but, but I will read it. Because it's why I titled this message, Our Glory Be to Christ. If you want to hear a song, you can go punch it into YouTube and, or the internet and Find somebody that can sing it better than me. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. Our glory be to Christ, our King. Our glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. Our glory be to Christ. His will be done. His kingdom come on earth as is above. Who is himself our daily bread. Bread, Praise him, the Lord of love. Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. All glory be to Christ. 
All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Oh, believer, this is not your home. It is your temporary dwelling place. And we must understand that we don't live for here and now. We don't live to amass everything we can. We don't live for our happiness here on earth. But we are called believer, follower of Jesus. You and I are called for a higher purpose and we must understand that because of Jesus and having our eyes fixed on him you can endure whatever comes your way on this earth whatever trial you face whatever suffering comes into your life whatever problem that you think is so big that you can't handle it all glory be to Christ because he is our savior and our eyes are fixed on Him. So the overall theme of the book of Hebrews is that we can endure any kind of severe trial by faith and seeing the glory of Christ in His person and work, Jesus should be everything to us. He is matchless in His person and work. All glory be to Christ. I sat and I mulled over, over and over and over again. How am I going to end this sermon as I want to bring it to conclusion? And I thought about a video I'd seen by Pastor Lockridge. And I thought, you know what? It's probably the best way to conclude. Why? Because he can preach Christ. And so I'm going to show a video and then I'll come back up and close this out this morning. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available 
struggles of the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. everything? Is he everything to you? Do you know him? Do you know King Jesus? Do you understand that seeing the glory of Christ in his person and work will enable you, church, to endure every trial on this earth? All glory be to Christ, my King. All glory be to Christ. I just want to challenge you this morning that if you don't know Him, that today would be the day of salvation. If you do know Him, but you've lost focus, oh, that your eyes would become focused on who Jesus is, that you would see his glory in his person and work, and that you will be enabled to endure your trials. As always, I'll be standing down front. If you need prayer, someone to pray with, you want to pray on your own, that's fine. I just want to make that available to you this morning if you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer.